You're listening to Work Tape, episode 68. All right, welcome back to the Work Tape podcast. It's your boy, Money Mitchell. And uh, we also got Isaac Grover in the building as well. Uh, We are back in the rotation of doing this programming, and it's so good to finally be back doing these episodes together. And um, we're going to continue a bit of a musical journey and retrospective look with years ending in the twos. With it being 2022, we decide to look back on albums of other various decades and years within the twos and talk about kind of their influence on whatever the scene was going on and, of course, the scene itself. And 92 was really interesting because... Despite roasting it. Yes. I mean, 92 doesn't have nearly as much as what we would call landmark albums as, say, maybe a 2002 would have, which is going to be the next episode, um, which will be pretty extensive just in the rock and alternative scene of 2002. But 92 still had a lot of things going on. They're kind of more like uh, runner-ups rather than heavy hitters. But, I mean, granted, that being said, there are a few records on here. There are a few albums on here that I would still say are pretty significant in various musical stylings, especially because you had this intersection of, well... Of course, the year prior in 91 is when Nirvana heavy hitters. Yeah, is when Nirvana <laughs> shook everything up with Nevermind and, you know, essentially killed hair metal and all the bands that were associated with that and ushered in the the grunge rock sound. But the early 90s just saw rock getting more aggressive and more diverse even in the alternative side. So you had some more raw, aggressive type of rock. And then you also had the continuation of alternative rock that was established in the 80s. And actually, one of the big albums that I totally just kind of blanked on coming out in 92, but was pretty obvious once it was mentioned to me that this came out, is Rage Against the Machine's debut album, self-titled album. And it kind of was in a way, foundational for more rap and metal crossovers, which I guess would be, I hate to say that it's going to be new metal, that it laid the basis for new metal because that's kind of doing the album a little bit of a disservice. But I do think that there was a definitely more of like a social consciousness with Rage Against the Machine. They were somehow able to take the thrash aggressive sounds of somebody like Metallica or the big four thrash bands that came before them, but combine it with consciousness and, of course, a lot of lyrical stylings of hip-hop at that time, which was also going through a bit of a sea change because 80s hip-hop was very much the type of flow where, you know, I went to the hat store and I got myself a hat, like (laughs) very kind of rudimentary almost rhyme schemes and a lot of hip hop in the 80s, especially through the early and mid 80s. I mean, obviously, you did have some exceptions like Grandmaster Flash with the message where there was more of a social consciousness. But the majority of hip hop in the 80s was still kind of just having fun over disco breaks, essentially. Yeah, that's true. 
you know, that's where you heard a lot of the Chic influence. And Chic is probably one of the most sampled artists or bands in that respect because so much of their breaks ended up on various hip hop songs and albums. But Rage Against the Machine actually took a little bit of, I think, kind of what NWA maybe even came out with in the beginning with kind of a direct middle finger to the system and whatnot and combined it, like I said, with more of the thrash metal sound and essentially created their own lane in regards to that, especially with Tom Morello's guitar work being very reminiscent of DJing and just the stuff that he's able to do with a guitar is pretty wild. And then, of course, Zach De La Rocha with the commanding presence that he has in regards to uh, lyrics. And of course, this debut had some classic, classic songs. Bomb Track and Killing in the Name are the ones that really stand out to me in terms of setting the tone for a lot of 90s angst. Yep, yep. But of course, like I said, the guitar work on Morello's part is actually pretty groundbreaking in terms of what uh, he was able to essentially emulate with his guitar. He was almost kind of like the edge for new metal. Pretty much, yeah, because a lot of people were kind of copying him. But I, I would say even a lot of new metal, they didn't go into the level of manipulation of the guitar that Morello did in terms of making it sound like he was scratching. Of like course. He- he is in the lineage, though, of The Edge, where their guitar playing is more of a matter of effects and manipulation and sound design, if you will. Oh, yeah, of course. Rather than just like, I'm Eddie Van Halen, I'm going to melt your face off with a solo. Well, I mean, as as we stated before, the, the, <laughs> the EVH style of guitar playing was kind of dead and gone a little bit in the 90s. However, I will give a lot to EVH. Man, was he also a bit of a sound design guy, too. He, well, absolutely, yeah. He, um, I think my friend would be glad because he wants to hear this for me. I know he likes Cacophony a lot. They're a pretty good obscure metal band or uh, what's the word? Uh, neoclassical yeah. band. Yeah. Um, but no, EVH definitely, he had both of that down. But I still categorize him as a shredder. And then Tom Morello and The Edge. It's a different category. Sure. But you're right. Uh, Morello is, I mean, he's a he's an iconic guitarist for his time. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people, like I said, were kind of trying to emulate slash almost kind of like rip him off in a way. Because obviously with the edge, I mean, that guitar tone has been emulated and copied by so many different artists and bands. And honestly, a lot of Worship music owes a lot to the Joshua Tree in that respect. <laughs> we um, can talk about that another time too. <laughs> yes, that's that's probably a whole that's probably a whole episode in, its, in itself. I remember when I discovered that album, I was like, "Wait a minute, where have I heard this a billion times over?" You, you've heard it in churches, that's why. Yeah, you're still hearing it in churches. Yes, you are. <laughs> it's it's that it's that ambient, spacey guitar tone, and I'm sure that that was probably thirty something years later. Yep. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm sure that that was probably influenced also by Brian Eno too, because I think Brian Eno was all over the production of that album. But sure, yeah, sure. so the Rage Against the Machine definitely had an intersection of genres. It was the best of kind of this new aggressive form of rock, but then it also got the sea change that was happening in hip hop as well, getting a bit more serious and a bit more conscious and this is kind of when hip-hop, I think, was really starting to be taken seriously um, in regards to um, a genre. And 
kind of in that hip hop lane, of course, probably one of the biggest albums to come out in 1992 is The Chronic. Following the release of, I believe, Snoop Dogg's debut album came out in 91, which was Doggy Style. But uh, yeah, The Chronic was huge because it was Dre's departure from N.W.A. Ice Cube also put out a solo album as well, The Predator, um, which had some great singles in its own right. But basically, those two were kind of a lot of the foundation of kind of what made N.W.A. successful. Dre on the producing side and Ice Cube in the lyrical side. And so NWA as a whole was definitely kind of broken up and disbanded at this point. They were still kind of like firing shots at each other lyrically, which was kind of interesting. But, you know, the other members did not have the same success that Dre and Cube had. And that's pretty evident by just Dre's The Chronic in the sense that that really established the sound that many know as G-Funk or Gangster Funk, which is synonymous with West Coast music, but also sampling many smooth funk tracks from the 70s and putting a more hip-hop spin on it. Like I said, Snoop Dogg was featured heavily on The Chronic, which gave him kind of a elevated platform as well. And just the production, too, that The Chronic had for it being pretty much entirely done by Dre at the time, you know, is pretty huge. And like I said, establishing the West Coast sound and eventually, you know, what we got out of Death Row Records at that time and Tupac too later down the line. So yeah, The Chronic was also a huge, huge album in its own right. And then on the opposite side, if Gangster Funk was not your thing, if Rage Against the Machine was too aggressive for you, you had bands like or groups, rather, like Arrested Development, who put out their album as well at this time. And three years, five months, and two days, that's their debut album. And the funny thing about Arrested Development is that these guys, this group, was kind of one and done, at least. They did put out another album later down the line. It was nowhere near as successful as this one was. Yeah, this one stands out. Yeah, and... Arrested Development was kind of somewhat riding off coattails that were already established by Low End Theory and De La Soul, kind of more in the jazz, hip-hop kind of realm, just a bit of a different sound. I mean, they had a certain level of consciousness to their stuff as well. But it's definitely different. Yeah. And I think it's why it got big. I think it got big because it was similar but different, and it had their footprint or their um their prints all over it. <laughs> yes. And I think the smoother like instrumentation of the Arrested Development sound as well as, and like I said, that's exhibited also through Tribe Called Quest and later in the 90s, The Roots, um, although The Roots kind of came out with some stuff not too long after Arrested Development, but I would say The Roots really got into prominence in the late 90s. But all of these groups were considered more in the jazz, hip hop space and arena where it was easy listening. It was smooth. It was soulful. And like I said, jazz influenced. It wasn't the Rage Against the Machine or the G-Funk style of music where, you know, that exhibited or that evoked, you know, certain feelings of, you know, aggression or a different atmosphere. Or check your head. 
by Beastie Boys. Yeah, which is definitely more of like a punk hip hop album because in a way, like the Beastie Boys were kind of, they had some punk roots. It's softer than Rage, but it's more akin to that than... Well, yeah, they're more like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're a lot softer than Rage. (laughs) But yeah, so like the rest of the development was big as well just because there was just a lot of great stuff on there. I mean, people every day... Tennessee, of course, is that's the big one. And then uh, Mr. Wendell, too, is actually a pretty big song as well. More with a socially conscious message. And, you know, Arrested Development won Grammys for this. They, I think, won Best New Artist, which that's a topic in itself for another episode. The whole idea of whether or not there is a curse on artists that win the Best New Artist award, mostly coming out of the Millie Vanilli scandal where they won but they were frauds and it got revoked. And some people think that there's a curse with best new artists or artists who win best new artists. They say that there's a curse where they're not able to reach the, the level of success that they did have. So I will not refute that. Well, I think it's kind of a, a hit and miss thing. It doesn't apply to everybody because in some categories of, or some winners of best new artists are like Adele or John legend or something where They obviously didn't fall victim to that, but Arrested Development, unfortunately, kind of did. So they were kind of a flash in the pan thing. People kind of really dug the one album, and then that was pretty much the extent of of what they did. And then, of course, you know, groups like Tribe and De La and even Farside, who put out an album at this year. Bizarre Ride 2, the Farside. Yeah, they were kind of the ones that continued to push this style of hip hop forward in that respect and this kind of jazz influence thing. Although actually the the far side um I guess was this pre Dilla far side because yes to my knowledge cuz uh BS and then what was the other one? Ah, oh, I forgot. That's a big one. No, uh, that run one uh, away. Now is that 93 or 95? I think that's more like mid late 90s cuz I want to say Jay Dilla was really getting to prominence more in like the Mid to late 90s, although I think he did have production credits on some Tribe records. So I think Jay Dilla might have been on Marauders. I'm not sure. We, we need to give Dilla like probably his own episode, too, just because of the reach that he's had in regards to hip hop. Gaz Dilla. <laughs> yes. By the way, 95. So that wasn't too off. I mean, yeah, y- yes. 95. Yes. So. Sorry, I just had to quickly catch the microphone. It was about to fall over, which would have been disastrous. So I had to just do that real quick. But as we talked about with Rock in the establishment of... Before we get there, you need to touch on Love Deluxe because we're still in the hip-hop era. Okay, well, uh, Love Deluxe goes more into R&B, but sure, let's... It's different, but it's... Let's it's, make it happen, okay. Because then with The Rock, we're going to have to go through all of those, and then they're going to be like, why are we going to talk about her at the very end? I mean, we could. We could I mean, I mean absolutely. There's like. nothing... No, 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 I, I can get into it. Yeah, so Love Deluxe, just a great R&B album and an amazing album in general. I'm starting to see this come up in a lot of people's top albums, not just from the 90s, but overall period. And rightfully so, just because it further solidified a lot of the sounds that Sade was doing in the 80s, what made her and the band famous. That's the thing that I think a lot of people have a misconception about is a lot of people think that it's just Sade Abdu, but no, it's actually a band. It's an entire operation 
Um, I mean, yes, she is at the center of it, especially with, you know, her voice and kind of the like mystique that she had and the, you know, kind of overall vibe and aesthetic that she had. But it is very much a band and it's very much an effort from all of them in that respect. But with Love Deluxe, I mean, just the singles themselves with Couldn't Love You More, Cherish the Day, No Ordinary Love, like all those are amazing, amazing songs even to this day. The production on this album is incredible. If you told me it was recorded yesterday, I would probably believe you just because... I second that. The production's pretty modern sounding. Very much so. It almost sounds like someone today doing a throwback record. It sounds that good. Yeah, absolutely. And rightfully so, because I think in terms of modern artists, some of the bigger modern artists of the day have said that they've been inspired by Sade. Um, Drake has said on numerous occasions that a lot of his flow and delivery, especially on some of those like early Drake albums like Take Care or Nothing Was the Same, that he was trying to evoke Sade. And then The Weeknd, too, I think has actually stated that that Sade was an influence so it makes sense that comparison of of it sounding like a modern take on something old is pretty spot on in that respect, just because the artists that are currently doing that have stated that this album and Sade as an artist and a band has influenced them. Oddly enough, this is going to be really interesting in terms of somewhat of a rock connection that I just thought about. Deftones actually says that Sade is one of their biggest influences as well, which in a way I can totally see because Deftones has more of like that ambient, spacey kind of thing. In a way, it's still a surprise, though, because Deftones is so much harder in terms of the music. (laughs) But I can see like the whole idea of atmosphere, I guess. Deftones get pretty... uh... I mean, there are a plethora of bands that are very similar to Deftones, but I do like Deftones when they're, um, their dynamic is quiet. Yes. Um, they get more experimental and they get a little bit more. Because when they're heavier, they're not as experimental. They kind of remind me a little bit like Incubus when they're quiet. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would say Deftones and even like Tool or Dream Theater is kind of all in that. Yep. There's some proggy stuff going on in there. Yeah. And there's a ton of prog from uh, 92, by the way. Oh, yeah. There's a lot. But yeah, no, so Love Deluxe is just an amazing album. It has the jazz and funk of the 80s Sade records. Like I said, most notably Diamond Life as kind of the high benchmark that Sade said. And I believe that album came out in 85. So there was a lot of that, you know, jazz influence still on this Love Deluxe. But with it being the 90s and the early 90s, you also got a lot of what we now know as ambient music stuff that like Aphex Twin and Brian Eno were kind of doing. And then also trip hop too. a lot of the instrumentation on some of these Sade songs, especially on like No Ordinary Love or even Cherish the Day with the drum patterns and just the mix of organic and more synthetic electronic instruments kind of results in that trip hop sound that would be solidified more in the late 90s with Portishead and Massive Attack which those albums are great too. Massive Attack's Mezzanine is an amazing album. And uh, so is Portishead's album too. Those are also highly, highly regarded amongst music aficionados as some of the best to ever come out. Um, But with Sade and her vocals, I think that's the thing that makes Love Deluxe, I think, even a bit better and stand out a bit more 
over even some of the other trip hop albums is that actually Sade vocally is kind of in a different tier and from a songwriting standpoint is in a bit of a different tier than a lot of the trip hop releases that came later. Not to say that they had bad vocalists or anything, but it's kind of hard when you <laughs> it's kind of hard to compete with kind of that distinct of a voice and delivery and cadence. And overall, it's just like really good music to kind of just chill and vibe out to late night drives, you know, or just kind of night music in general. Actually, I was going to say, if you know, you're spending the evening with a significant other or a special person, I guess that would also be a good album to put on because it's got that atmosphere to it. But yeah, no, so Love Deluxe is definitely one of the highlight releases of 92. And, you know, speaking on Deftones and whatnot, that does kind of actually give a better segue into all of this rock that we have to cover. There's a lot, but we'll breeze right through it because we can just like kind of batch converse with these guys. I mean, they're all great. Don't get me wrong, but a lot of them are, I won't lie. There's a similarity to them that I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. They're good though. They're still definitive. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you want to start with the prog rock? Uh, sure. We can get in that. Of course, we mentioned Dream Theater when we were talking about Deftones. So images and words. Yeah. So they put out their album. I'm not as uber familiar with Dream Theater. I know that they have a lot of great guitar work. I know John Petrucci is one of the go-to guitarists in this scene of things. And I've heard some of their music and it's very atmospheric. It's very experimental, but still heavy. I don't know. I mean, I, that's kind of how I feel about it. I'm not sure what, what your take is on it, Isaac. Um, I like Dream Theater, but that album's not really one of my go-tos. I, it's, I know it's good. I've listened, I've skimmed through it a bit, but it's not in my all-time, but it doesn't mean it's a bad album. Right. Angel Dust by Faith No More is pretty good. I've given that one a listen. I, that one's pretty good. You know, it's pretty good. It's, uh, it reminds me a little bit of Pre-System of a Down. Um, the singing is very... Maybe bombastic, like you mentioned, but it's also, again, it's just very dynamic. You know, these prog rock bands are masters of dynamics. And I think that's what makes them so fun to listen to is that you never get bored with stuff like that. And so Angel Dust is a great listen to for sure. But this is more into like the thrash and the, you know, more kind of metal, which is a Megadeth countdown to extinction. Yes. 1092 and then Vulgar Display of Power by Pantera. Yes, both of those. I think the Pantera one was probably, well, actually, the Pantera is what I'm definitely more familiar with in Vulgar Display of Power. Right. So Pantera actually had a much different sound before this album. So that's one thing that people don't quite realize sometimes is that actually before they put out this album, they had a significantly different sound. The sound that Pantera had before this album came out was actually more of a hair metal type sound, which, of course, you know, they adjusted with the times and decided to do something different. And one of the biggest things, of course, their debut before this, which was Cowboys from Hell or not their debut, but one of their breakthrough albums before this. Yeah, that one's a breakthrough. Phil Anselmo is their vocalist. And the sound of the band changed pretty drastically when Phil Anselmo came in and started singing. It became that aggressive, thrashy in your face type of sound to Pantera, especially when you pair it with Dimebag Daryl's guitar playing. So Dimebag and Phil were kind of really the big heavy hitters of the band. Not to say that the 
the other members didn't pull their weight. Of course they did, but kind of the Pantera sound was mostly in Dimebag and Phil being together. And Walk is one of the big songs off of this vulgar display of power album. And it kind of makes you just want to like get in a fight, I guess. And of course, the album cover is literally someone just getting punched in the face. So I mean, like valid. That kind of goes to show you like what you're in for listening to this album in that respect. And the fact that it's going to be heavy hitting. (laughs) So here's a cool transition because. Yeah, go ahead. Caius is kind of that gap between that metal sound. And now this is going more toward the Nirvana L7 type stuff. Even though L7 has pretty much been put together with a lot of thrash and metal acts. It still, to me, is more like Alice in Chains in some ways. It's not the same pop formula. It's different. But, you know, you could still put L7 with Hole. And not Sonic Youth, but you could, you know, they can hang with the Grunge Cats a bit. Yeah. And so Caius is that pre-formation of Queens of the Stone Age. Really good album. I like that one. Blues for the Red Sun. That one's like more stoner metal. It reminded me of Melvin's, actually. Okay. Doom metal and sludge metal. Yes. It reminded me of that. And then Bricks Are Heavy by L7. Everyone has heard the top singles from that album. Oh, yeah. Dirt. That one's huge. And Core by Alice in Chains and Stone Temple Pilots, respectively. Yep. So Dirt is cool because one of the big songs that I love off that album, kind of going into more of that like socially conscious type of music, is Rooster. Yeah, yes. And that's kind of the song that, to me, sticks out on that album. I mean, I obviously know that there's great stuff on there, too. I like Them Bones is a very popular Alice in Chains song. Actually, Godsmack, the band, got their name from Godsmack, the song. Oh, okay. I didn't, I, I didn't even know that. Yes. So they, they did. <laughs> they did. So now Godsmack is nowhere near on the level of Alice in Chains. I'm, I'm glad that you agree. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say uh, that that's a thing. Because Godsmack, Five Finger Death Punch... Um, other bands too. That's in the butt rock category. Hinder. Oh, no. Oh, I can't stand Hinder. Oh. Hoobastank. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. Hoobastank is not quite like. Just still a terrible name. I know. They're not that bad. No, they're not bad. I think their yeah. name just like this. It's like a Goo Goo Dolls. I think it's one of the worst band names of all time, but they're pretty good. Yeah. Well, Hoobastank is kind of when you compare. But they do bridge a gap though, because they are in that same vein, even though they don't suck. Well, I think Hoobastank was a little more pop even than those other bands were. Cause but you'd still put Hoobastank with Simple Plan and Limp Bizkit, though. Of course. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> but but if you're saying but if you're saying Hinder, Godsmack, and what was the other one? Five Finger Death Punch. Hoobastank is definitely the odd one out in that respect. Sure. Because sure. Hoobastank did have, I'm not a perfect person. <laughs> And they had The Reason, which is kind of one of the most uh, successful yet annoying songs that I've heard. And that's an early 2000s. I'd still say that Juggalos listen to Hoobastank. Of course they do. Yes, but... <laughs> Guilty by association. Yes, but it's but it's not like... So Hinder is the band for Chardonnay Moms, basically. Oh, I can't stand him. It's 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 Chardonnay Moms. It's all the it's all the <laughs> it's all the hair metal that I did not like in the 80s. Yikes. Made for a 2000s audience, which I'm like, no. And then <laughs> and then Godsmack and Five Finger tried to kind of evoke the thrashiness of the 90s and just 
didn't quite really have the songwriting to really back it up. Valid point. And I think that was the thing with Alice in Chains and this Dirt album was, like I said, them Bones and Rooster respectively are kind of the real highlights there on the album, although I'm sure there might be some listeners listening in who are Alice in Chains fans saying there's way better music on there (laughs) than just those two songs, bro. Oh, we'll also have to dissect Plush. Yes. Yes. But, 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 But I think the thing is like, with the Dirt album, it's so like indicative of how Lane Staley was such a big driving factor. Like so much of these bands in the 90s were kind of driven by their front men a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And just like I said with Pantera, it was actually the dynamic of the front man and the guitarist usually kind of working in tandem. With Pantera, it was Dimebag Daryl and Phil Anselmo. Mm, good point. And with Alice in Chains, it's Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley working together because I think in both of those cases, the guitarists were also the main songwriters, which kind of is a no duh moment, I guess for, you know, a rock band that the guitarist is going to write a good chunk of the songs because, you know, they're able to come up with things on the fly. But Rooster is a fantastic song about the tragedies and whatnot that have come with the Vietnam war. So that is a great song. It's one of those things where it's so simple, yet it really, really works. Yes. Because speaking very much from a musician standpoint now in terms of playing music, it's a very simple song to play on guitar, actually. It's mostly just a few chords, power chords, mostly, if you don't count the guitar solo. A lot of these bands are more in the stoner vein. They're still kind of coming out of the stoner because when you get to bands more like Pavement and Sonic Youth, it's not so stonery. It's a little bit more like crazy for the sake of being crazy. But like when I think of like Stone Temple Pilots, Caius and Alice in Chains, I'm thinking like hazy and kind of not fully there. Sure. Okay. Soundgarden kind of also delved a little bit kind of in that area. Yeah. Kind of acidy. Yeah. 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 Acid would be the way to describe it. Not quite full on psychedelic, but more. Not necessarily. Right. But more acidy. And I guess that makes sense because if you think about. Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. Some of those band members were probably on heroin, acid. So I, I can hear it. So I can hear the heroin. Well, actually, I <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually, I actually, I know for don't a, do heroin, by the way. No, we're no. The Worte podcast does not endorse. <laughs> we the do use not. Of, <laughs> we do not endorse the use of heroin to make great grunge music. No, we're not saying that. No, not at all. <laughs> but but it's very obvious and it's very documented that Lane Staley was very much someone who battled with substance abuse. And those um, who live by the drug die by the drug. Yes, and and he did. Now he made it through the early two thousands. He lived a lot longer than a lot of his grunge peers did. Obviously Cobain, you know, with the shotgun and I mean Chris Cornell actually lived even longer than all of them. Yeah, he did. And then, of course, Chris Cornell took his own life, which then led to Chester taking his own life, which is just still incredibly sad because Linkin Park was one of my favorite 2000s bands. Actually, Linkin Park was probably influenced a lot by Rage Against the Machine. Oh, totally. In terms of the rap and metal kind of fusion, the DJ work. I would still say BC, too. I mean, when you get into the pre-New Metal and, I mean, Run DMC, who wasn't influenced by Run right. DMC? Of like- course. Yeah. And we can even get into the whole 21 pilot situation where that's kind of like furthering that genre. 
Yeah, I want to say that Linkin Park has even cited like Depeche Mode as influences too, which I that's a little harder for me to see. But sure, sure. I guess in a way because of the electronic thing, but in terms of all the grunge artists that have died or taken their own lives, we got to make sure that Eddie Vedder is protected at all costs. <laughs> we need to make sure that we have people around him on a daily basis to make sure that um, Eddie Vedder and Scott Stapp. Yeah. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, that's right. Because Scott Wayland of the Stone Temple Pilots is also dead, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love Scott's voice. Yeah, I, Scott Wayland, too. I do. Yeah. Scott Whale. Wow, that's a very interesting yeah, last name. Yeah, Scott Whalen. No, a lot of respect for him. That dude has the voice. Him and um, Chris Cornell, for sure. I think well, are I mean, actually, a couple all, of my favorites. I mean, actually, all of them. I mean, Lane Staley, Chris Cornell. Billy and Kurt are kind of the odd ones out here, but I love their voices, though. Billy Corgan? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're, they're, they're different. They're different. What he lacks in voice, he makes up for in his songwriting abilities and his guitar playing. Yeah. Smashing Pumpkins are a class act, but we can get into that later. Yeah, there was a lot of drama and Billy kind of had- A lot of those bands. Billy can get a little pretentious. Just a little bit. I'm just going to be honest with you. I think that there was some level of pretentiousness that he had that the other bands didn't, just from my perspective, but- no, all three of those guys. And then, are you like me? <laughs> With that reverb, you actually sounded like Oh, it. no. Right, exactly. <laughs> but Scott Stapp is not like the others because Scott Stapp just directly ripped off Eddie Vedder. Tomorrow. Better. I mean, Scott Stapp directly ripped off yeah, but he Eddie, did, Eddie he did better. A, he did a good job, though. I, I have to hand well, it to, well, to him. Well, he well he did, but I mean, think about it. Creed was maybe the Greta fan fleet of their day because if you think about it, Creed pretty much took a lot from Pearl Jam and '90s rock. They you know the, what I want to say about Creed, though? I want to say something about Creed. This is my Creed. Oh, <laughs> that, my sacrifice. <laughs> that Creed was still more. Believe it or not, I know you're going to disagree with me. I believe they were still more a product of their time than Greta. Greta, oh, of course, threw back way too far for me to even give a care about what they're doing. No, Greta Van Fleet sounds like if you listen to your old man say, literally, literally, say, if you listen to your old man say, uh, "There's no real music anymore," and you actually believed him. That's what <laughs> Greta Van Fleet sounds like. No, Creed at least sounded like their time see there i mean they, they were at least doing they did but and nickelback had at least a couple uh you know they had a good album they had one good album they, they did they had at least one good album that one's not debatable i do think that actually nickelback can be a little overhated totally at at, at times i still don't like them but they're no, definitely overhated no uh, <laughs> I, i'm not playing them on the ox this is my personal opinion i just am not big on them so no no if you're hand <laughs> no if you hand me the ox i'm not playing nickelback because that'll get me kicked out of most people's cars but spin the ox on the ops right no it, that's not gonna happen but yeah so very much in the case of the 90s here to kind of just wrap things up no we're okay i'm gonna do this though because we're wrapping it I'm going to open it really quickly and put a little bit more in the box and then you can wrap it. All right, go ahead. Let, get, get at it. This Isaac. is a speed sesh. Little Earthquakes by Tori Amos. Fantastic. So if you like your Kate Bush, your Fiona Apple, your Regina Spector, I got you. That one's a classic album. Dry by PJ Harvey. That one's also good. A little bit more experimental. You know, it, it's the same vein. It also reminds me of uh, Sleater Kinney. So stuff like that. Dirty Sonic Youth. I mean, that one's an amazing one. That one's one of my recommended for this entire podcast is for sure Dirty by Sonic Youth. That one's great. Slanted and Enchanted, Pavement's first record. So give that one a listen. 
And then now we get to the shoegaze and kind of mid-late 80s, 90s sound, which is Congregation by Afghan Wigs, Wish by The Cure, Automatic for the People by R.E.M. They deserve more attention. Henry's Dream by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. That one's also really good. A little bit like Bruce Springsteen and David Bowie vocally. Generation Street Terrorists by Manic Street Preachers. I actually kind of like these guys. They're a bit like the Stone Roses. I forgot the name of the single, but it's pretty catchy. Okay. It's pretty good stuff. And then lastly, Going Blank Again by Ride. That one is amazing. Ride is great. I don't know if you listen to Ride, but you should listen to them. But that's like your shoegazy, kind of Smith-inspired type stuff. Or like uh, The Sundays. Yep. Um, My Bloody Valentine and Adorable. It's shoegazy and it's it's Smithsy. Yes. Wow. That was just an, an excellent run that we had there by Isaac. And if <laughs> uh, if you need some great... Uh, if you need alternative, I'm your guy. Yeah. No, that was just... That was amazing in terms of just all those alternative recommendations. I know for sure that I need to probably check some of that out as well. But yeah. So the 90s, man. Not as bad as I said. Definitely not. But not as important as a lot of other years. Oh, no, 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 no. Definitely not as front loaded and not as stacked. No. In terms of heavy hitting releases. But there was still enough going on that you could say that it wasn't a complete wash in regards of music. There are music years that you break it down. 69 stacked. 73 stacked. Yeah. 79 stacked. Yes. <laughs> we'll just, 91 stacked. Like we'll just do like a stack series. Yeah, we we have <laughs> we, we have to because I mean some of those ones I think are way too important not to discuss. Maybe even 2007 stacked. Uh, really 07? Maybe maybe not. Maybe. Maybe. I, I mean I know uh, Riot's not as big as um some other albums but Oh, okay. 07 might be. You know, and and Maroon did release that year as well. Yeah, but they're big ones, though, too, which were Arctic gonna... Monkeys. Oh, that's right. Hold on. I'm going to. Oh, you know what? Oh, 07... I think 07 is pretty stacked. Uh, Yeah, because 07, you got Neon Bible, Arcade Fire. Yep. You have In Rainbows by yep. Radiohead and you have Graduation by Kanye West. So, I mean, just those three albums will probably last you an entire episode. Yeah. So 07 stacked. You also have um, Linkin Park's album, which is Minutes to Midnight. You have For Emma Forever Ago by Bonnie Veer. Mm-hmm. You have Rihanna's debut, or not debut. She was around, but like her breakthrough album. And you have a Foo Fighters album yep. that came out in 07. Yep, Echoes. Yeah, so we can definitely so get into the, some stacked years. Oh, and that's right. There was a Modest Mouse release, too, for yep. the independent thing. Although Modest Mouse is kind of one of those that ones. That wasn't really that great of an album, but it's, you know, you take it for what you want. This is a hot take. I think Modest Mouse is a tad overrated. I think just from my perspective. Sure. Their studio. You know, you're actually right. You're actually totally right. But classic 90s Modest. I mean, like Moon in Antarctica from 2000. They, they're overrated, but they're pretty good, too. But I feel like they're in the vein of like Wilco, too, in that they respect. Are. They are. And Neutral Milk. Yeah. That's a sound. That's an aesthetic where... If you like one of those bands, you're probably <laughs> going to listen to all of those bands because it fits with it. I like erratic singing. Kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, I watched some videos of Modest Mouse live and oof, they're a little hit and miss live. He is so fun to mimic. I love Isaac Brock. But dude, I do, I live, do. they are... It's, uh, it's, it's hit and miss. Yes. And if you're charging 200 a ticket, I'm like... Eee. Yeah, I'm going to keep it modest. But the 90s is just dope because you had to really just kind of wrap this all up 
thrash metal, you had grunge, you had ambient and trip hop, you had alternative and hip hop, of course, all going at the same time, which basically in 92, there was really an album for everybody. And the 90s in general actually was a good time to be a music head because you had so many options. You had basically songs for every mood. You had songs for every kind of feel. You had bands or artists that are now considered legendary. Speaking putting, of feel, electric feel, that's also 2007. Uh, oh, is it? That MGMT record? Isn't that? I think it is. It is 07. Uh, what's the name of that album? Oh, Oracular Spectacular. See, I couldn't remember the name. And yes, it is 07. Yeah, so we'll wow. stacked. We will wow. do 07 stacked. <laughs> okay. Well, no, that I mean that album is No, 07 was a pivotal year for music. So, we'll we'll get into it. The thing about MG just one thing I'll say quick about that MGMT record is actually I don't think did MGMT really ever surpass that album? I don't think they really no, did. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. No. We liked them. We appreciated them, but we really appreciated them for what they did with Oracular. I mean, it was. Yeah, because I mean, come on. Electric feel, time to pretend, kids all on the same record. Bro. Like, bro. Like, yeah, dude. And I mean, electric feel is one of my favorite songs. 07 of all, of all is, is the template for the 2010s. And then, of course, we got to talk about it in Rainbows, man. We will. We will. Yeah, because that's my favorite Radiohead record. I know that that's a basic choice for but a favorite so Radiohead good. album. I know it is. But, hey, at least I didn't say that OK Computer is my favorite album from Radiohead. I didn't say that Kid A is my favorite album from Radiohead. Right. I feel like those would be even more. Well, actually, Kid A, maybe not, because Kid A is really polarizing. It is very polarizing. Yeah. Amongst the Radiohead crowd. Some people love it some people despise it i'm in the middle i'm in the middle yeah me too the one radiohead that was really good actually that i don't think got enough flowers moonshape pool i thought actually was pretty solid it was solid and you're right it didn't get much attention i mean it was kind of radiohead's ghost stories which in a way kind of was interesting i wanted 2016 to be a great year for music but honestly it let me down but we can get into that later oh 2017 might be an interesting 2017 was fine i for some reason 2016 let me down but 2017 okay. was a good one. You had Damn and yeah. uh, Awaken My Love. Right. So, yeah, we'll get into it. That would be good. All right. Well, this has been a, another episode of the Worktape podcast. Keep tuned in, and we're going to cover 2002, which was also incredibly stacked that year. That is the greatest year for me. That is so <laughs> good. We will get into 02. No, 02 is like. We're going to probably spend an hour on 02. We might. We might. We might even go over. <laughs> Because, I mean, come on, songs about Jane, Rush of Blood, uh, the Interpol record. Oh, it's okay. Uh, Stay, tuned. Stay tuned. Songs for the Deaf. <laughs> I mean, that's... One by one. It's not even Foo Fighters' greatest record, and that album's still good. It's so good. Wow, Dave Grohl had two great albums out that year. I wow, know. That, he, right? was, he was killing it. He was it. stacked. He was killing it. But anyways, 2002, be listening to that. Once again, it's your boy, Money Mitchell. We got Isaac Grover. What's good with it? Yep. And uh, that's it, man. Um, so stay tuned. Work tape forever. Let's get it. Peace. Peace.